the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. 61 million Americans have been diagnosed with COVID as of this date. 838,000 have died. The COVID pandemic is proof of our interconnection, our interdependence. Yet instead of focusing on how we can meet and beat this pandemic together, there has been much conversation about our individual rights. That's the focus then of this edition of Challenge 2.0. No one tells me what to do. Well, we'd like to introduce as guest today, Pastor Liz Carney from Longview Presbyterian Church, who also serves as a hospital chaplain, and Dan O'Neill, the founder of Mercy Corps, uh, now retired, but led it to become the fifth most influential relief and development organization, non-governmental uh, relief and development organization in the world. So Dan and Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Well, this is a fascinating topic, and I will admit to the fact that it first arose in my consideration after I saw a video that uh, Liz had done. So I'd like to begin with a video that was aired, I believe, beginning last year, 2021, by the State Department of Health that addressed the pushback against efforts to limit the pandemic, to find ways that we could all cooperate together. So we're going to go to that video right now. My name is Reverend Liz Carney, and I'm a co-pastor at Longview Presbyterian Church in Cowlitz County. The core value of my life is to love my neighbor as myself, and that was an integral part of why I decided to get vaccinated. There's actually very little in the Bible about protecting our personal rights, but there is a lot about responsibility to one's neighbor. I believe it's an act of not just compassion, but an act of justice to get the vaccine to make sure that our community can be more protected. So Liz, I'd like to begin by asking you, what led to your participation in that video? Uh, and what sort of internal dialogue did you have as you sort of mulled over your perspectives and what you would say? I have had the privilege of engaging uh, a lot with the folks at Cowlitz County Health and Human Services. That's where I'm located, uh, down here in the south end of Washington State. Um, and I've engaged with them a lot because I'm also the co-chair of our county's severe weather shelter. And so we do some collaboration there. And then I was among the first to be vaccinated because of uh, my other work as a hospital chaplain. And they invited me to be involved in the hashtag I got the shot campaign that they did on social media last year when vaccines were first coming out. And then um, because they knew I was vaccinated, uh, I think I was a natural choice then because they knew how to contact me. Uh, and so they, they contacted me this past July. Um, to see if I would be willing to participate in creating these short videos that featured local community leaders in Cowlitz County who have chosen to get the COVID-19 vaccine. And as for my internal dialogue, I what felt important to me uh, was to, to share out of my own personal experience. Um, it felt important to share honestly that I was anxious too to get a new vaccine. 
Um, and then encourage people to that that fear is normal and an understandable reaction to something that's brand new. And it's what we do when we feel afraid and anxious, uh, you know, seeking other sources of high quality professional medical advice, learning more from trusted med medical professionals in our lives about the vaccine, and then making a plan so that we can, uh, and speaking from my own experience, so that I can do what I am able to do to protect myself, to protect my loved ones, my relatives, um, and to slow transmission by getting vaccinated, which really protects the most vulnerable members of our community. So um, I wanted to open up some curiosity uh, about people's fear and also encourage them to keep seeking good sources of information. And relating, Liz, to that discussion and the points that you made about rights versus responsibilities, what sort of reaction did you get, not only from members of your church, but also members of your community? The response from my own congregation has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, that's been the easy part. They are folks who have always been leaders in this community um, when it relates to doing what we can to keep our most vulnerable neighbors safe. That's a core value of uh, who Longview Presbyterian Church is and is what part of what drew me to, their, to that congregation. That part's been easy. Um, there has been some negative pushback. I've received some, um, I think, earnest and angry emails and letters um, in response to some of the remarks I made in that commercial. Um, some of them, unfortunately, seem to me to be pretty steeped in conspiracy theories about the vaccine. Um, and I will say I've also received some of the notes that I will always treasure are a few notes from people in my community who I've never met writing handwritten cards to say that it was refreshing to them as either a person of faith or someone who has left the church mm -hmm. to see um, someone who's willing to speak in favor of vaccinations as a way to help our community from the grounding of their Christian faith. Looking at the broader range of your duties, you serve as co-pastor at uh, uh, Longview Presbyterian, but you also work as a hospital chaplain. And I'm wondering, during this whole COVID experience, uh, how much your experiences in the hospital ministering to the needs of people uh, that are either hospitalized or the families of those hospitalized and perhaps not uh, surviving their experience, how much did that inform your decision to speak out on this? I think a large part of the ways those ministries connect to each other is they, they remind me of the ways that uh, we belong to each other in this community and that whether we like it or not, we are interconnected. And so my church's decisions that I believe were very faithful decisions, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic and throughout to mainly stay online so that we could keep our communities safe I see as being directly related to reducing transmission to not overwhelm our hospital systems and our ICUs um, and reduce suffering in those spaces. Um, I, I think this pandemic, it's definitely reminded me and I think it's reminded many people that even if we wanted to live as islands, the reality is that we are deeply and inextricably connected to one another and our choices uh, whatever choices we do make, they do have ripple effects. They have impacts. And from being in the parish to also being in the hospital caring for folks, I have seen how when the transmission rates go up, it deeply increases the suffering of people in our communities. One of the biggest things I've done as a hospital chaplain 
is walk alongside families in this season who do not get to be at their loved one's side when they are dying. And there is a real moral distress that happens for anyone working in a hospital when they watch families not get to have those precious moments for a good death, to say goodbye to a loved ones in the ways that we are designed to. Dan, as we look back at your life's work uh, leading up to Mercy Corps and then your career throughout that, uh, it seems like your career has been the very definition of recognizing a sense of connection with others and a sense of responsibility for the problems that others are experiencing. Uh, when we talked a little bit before, uh, you mentioned that in 1968, a year that you were in college, was a real wake-up call for you. Uh, I might ask you to talk about what that wake-up call was and what were the events that led to that? Well, at the time, I was an art student at the University of Washington. I was in a five-year program. And um, in 1968, uh, it's, it was a huge crossroads year for a lot of reasons, but one of mine was that I was selected by the University of Washington to be in a, in an experimental dormitory housing situation with African-Americans who didn't have the grades and didn't have the money. So it was a proactive program to bring them in and to live among us and, and us among them. So we had uh, part of a dormitory that was dedicated to that experiment, if you will. And going into that, the requirement was that we read the autobiography of Malcolm X, which was a real wake-up call for me and gave me a, a lot of understanding about what I was going into. And the experience through that year was, uh, it was a lot of drama and uh, there was conflict and there was uh, just a lot of things going on. Some of the the friends that I ended up hanging out with were, were Black Panthers. And I got to know a little bit more about their cause, where they came from, the social uh, economic uh, environment in which they felt pressured to take a course of proactive, you know, the shotguns and the black leather and the berets. And, uh, and I, I got to understand them and actually become friends with a number of them. So that was one thing. The other thing was the, the tragic assassination of uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Um, I had met him when he came to the University of Washington just a couple of weeks before he was killed in California. And that was a shock to the system, I think, for many of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there was the, um, uh, the death, the untimely death of one of my favorite uh, theologians. He was a Trappist monk named Thomas Merton. And he died in Bangkok at a conference in 1968. A number of people believe it was, you know, an assassination. Uh, others believe that he was accidentally electrocuted by an, a fan in his in his uh, hotel room where he was staying. But um, so a number of those those things were colliding factors. And at the time, I was a political cartoonist for the the uh, Daily, the Washington University of Washington Daily, and uh, uh, you know, and I was a political cartoonist that had a lot of commentary about the Vietnam War. So all of, all of that was happening in a sort of pressurized uh, environment back in 1968 that caused me to take a deeper look about what my path and my trajectory would be. 
Well, then after graduation, uh, it's my recollection that you ended up doing a lot of traveling and ended up in the Middle East. And there were some experiences, I suspect, there that led to uh, expand your sense of relation, connection to others, and expand that wake-up call. Uh, fill us in a little bit of about that and what that wake-up call was like. Okay, well, I traveled first to the Middle East via Europe overland in a Land Rover uh, vehicle, and I was the driver that led a, a group of students from, from Europe and around the world to see, you know, all the countries from, you know, Switzerland all the way down to Italy, Greece, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Cyprus, and then going into Israel and retracing the footsteps of Jesus in Galilee. And uh, I basically left the group at that time and walked on to a kibbutz. I was assigned my own tractor and I got to know the people. I immersed myself in the study of Judaism and Islam and church history. So I was on this pilgrimage of faith that drew me into a larger perspective of, you know, how we fit together as as people and uh, and other faiths. That's where I sort of became um, a, an interfaith person as opposed to an ecumenical person. And there's a difference. But during that time in 1973, I was dead center in the middle of a, one of the most uh, destructive wars uh, that took place in that region, and that was the Yom Kippur War, where Syria invaded in the north of Israel, Egypt invaded in the south, out of the Sinai. And so I was working during that th those 18 days uh, with, you know, jets and helicopters and tanks and shelling and rockets coming in. And so that was a really very severe, you know, sort of experience for me that caused me to really wake up and decide that I wanted my life to be something about peacemaking and conflict resolution or conflict management um, and to give myself to a larger larger vision of serving others in a in a broader context so as you develop mercy corps uh what encounters and that's a story in itself but what encounters underscore not only your sense of connection the need for the sorts of efforts that you elaborated on but also the sense of why at heart we're very similar, we're all connected, and we can't just focus on our own narrow lane. Well, you know, I think that uh, human suffering is a, is a global reality. And, you know, Liz talked about how we're all interconnected. And I, I agree with her. I think that as social creatures, we have a connection as humans where we can't escape the realities in which we find ourselves. For example, seeing a child suffer and die of starvation or in some violent conflict is a horrifying, shocking experience, regardless of what the nationality or, or the, the racial realities are of these people. Uh, you know, I, be, I began to empathize and, and um, connect myself to them through a sense of compassion, which I think is the heart of you know my mercy corps years we're putting compassion into into some kind of action that relates to these folks so um you know rwanda was a horrifying experience 800,000 people were killed in a matter of a couple of months 
Uh, I was one of the first aid workers to go in and see all of that. A massive human slaughter, um, uh, refugees in Ethiopia, Somalia, other parts of Africa. And then of course, this ongoing conflict in the Middle East, which is still a fuse that's burning down. It seems like every month there's a new crisis. When we look at suffering, as you uh, so aptly described it, Dan, uh, when we talk about social justice, when we talk about concern for others, we sometimes get the reaction, well, that's politics. It has no place in religion. And so I would ask both of you, and maybe I might just ask Liz to address that first. Uh, what are your responses when you hear that? I get this question a lot, <laughs> um, particularly because I spend a lot of time in the public comment section of my local county and city meetings, um, speaking up about various issues that impact particularly oppressed communities where I live. And I do get that reaction of, well, you know, Jesus wasn't political. <laughs> and speaking as a Christian, what I always say to people, and I think I got this from another pastor, I can't think of who it was now, but Jesus was not partisan, but he was certainly political. And the reason we know that is because he died an extremely political death. Um, he, there were lots of ways that the Roman Empire could, um, you know, execute you. Um, crucifixion was reserved for those who, in particular, had stepped out of line with the empire's program for oppression and subju subjugation and control. And here Jesus was spending time with uh, you know, women involved in sex work, people who had leprosy and been cast out of their communities, all kinds of people on the margins. And he was centering their realities and lifting up their voices and hanging out with them and partying. And um, that was a threat to the empire. And that's why they murdered him. And so for me as a Christian, I see... Uh, my role in following Jesus to be also centering the voices and experiences of those who uh, are crucified among us today, because I think that's where Jesus is hanging out. And so while Jesus does not celebrate one political party over another, we can be sure that Jesus uh, is very, was very politically engaged because of, because of the fact that they killed him. Dan, what's your perspective on that? My perspective is very similar to what Liz stated. Um, uh, politics become sort of, in my world, in an aid agency, almost totally integrated with the mission where we find ourselves, whatever country, whatever region. Um, I'm, I'm struck by the, the reality that the word mercy um, uh, you can be found 276 times in the Bible. So it must be important. Uh, and mercy, in my view, is sharing compassion. Uh, it's interesting to me that the Latin word for compassion is um, misericordia, or a sick heart. And I think that's the bridge that I cross when I reach into these uh, regions in conflict or poverty. And, and do things that will automatically become politicized. So we automatically find ourselves in a political world. The question is, how do we navigate that? For me, 
it's combining peace and social justice together. You can't have one without the other. Liz, when you did those videos and you looked at the issues of safety and health, science was a fundamental element. Uh, as somebody trained in science, it seemed to me that was always a given, but it seems there's more pushback against that right now. Uh, and there's a question of are science and faith fundamentally in opposition? I might ask you first, Liz, what's your view on that? I think that science and faith are both, in my opinion, at their best when they are holding hands and dancing in cooperation together. Because I think for me, science has always been this miraculous study that can help us understand the how of this wild world. <laughs> um, and I think faith and conversations about ethics can help us answer the why are we here? Who are we called to be questions? And I think um, all those questions are answered best when we answer them in conversation with each other. Um, and I think all of them are useful tools that I've only ever experienced them as um, being partners and working together well. And Dan, I might ask, you know, knowing all the countries, all the very difficult situations that you uh, willingly participated in trying to ameliorate, uh, be it sickness, be it disease, uh, be it hunger, uh, be it poverty, uh, it would seem like science helped offer some at least part solutions uh, in addition to the touch of a human hand and heart. Uh, did you run into, in those situations, a situation where you had to persuade them that you could trust the science and that there was not an opposition between science and faith? Uh, yeah, I can think of several of our, our more technologically uh, geared outreach programs. For example, cellular phones became a way of banking and borrowing and communicating in African villages, um, you know, we had to to persuade them to uh, understand more about about water and how it can be easily polluted and carry illness. Uh, and you know, when we came as a humble partner to these people, it's like Liz said, it's it's a hand in hand reality. You know, one confirms the other. Um, I'm struck by the fact, as a person of faith, that the Vatican has some of the most advanced astronomy, uh, you know, observatories and scientists that, in the world. So I think that there's a major faith reaching out to the stars and saying, you know, where did we come from and exactly how did creation happen? Mm -hmm. So I'm not threatened by the science or the other end of things. You know, it's... Um, I just think it's part of the reality that, you know, guided by science, I think can be a pathway even in the faith dynamic and perspective. There's also the issue of fear, and I think that's a part of what both of you reflected on. Uh, very often the fear of the unknown. Uh, what sort of dialogue, and whoever wants to tackle that first, what sort of dialogue do we need to uh, engage in uh, to address and counter that fear? Well, I guess I would ask, where is the fear coming from? Are you referring to the fear that we find in the field or just the fear of what might happen to us in, in a very hot war? I've been in 12 war zones myself. And, you know, I've, I experienced total fear at certain times. Uh, but I think, you know, you have to have your faith overcome that fear to reach out for the purpose in which you 
are, you know, establishing a program or a humanitarian endeavor. Uh, but some, you know, fear is actually a built-in sort of psychobiological reality, you know, fight and flight. I think it can be used motivationally, but I think it can also paralyze us when we're overwhelmed with it. I have a tendency to just want to react. <laughs> I think we all do in times of fear. Um, and I think the I've been working on myself, the impulse to slow down and be curious about the reasons that the person I may be talking to is afraid. And so trying to reason and logic someone out of their fear is not effective because the brain actually isn't, our lizard brain isn't communicating that way with our frontal cortex. Um, and so I think anything we can do to tune into the sort of primal feelings that a person is having that are leading them to be afraid, if we can tune into that, we not only can get to some of the roots of what's making them afraid and actually address those things rather than just be reactionary, um, but then I think we cultivate what Dan has been talking about, this deep empathy. Um, when I find out the reasons people are afraid, I often find that I have a lot in common <laughs> with reasons that afraid for my family, afraid because of the uncertainty of the future. Um, it's what we do with the fear. Um, and I think curiosity and slowing down for me have been things I've been trying in place of just reacting. <laughs> I'm not good at it yet, but I'm working on it. I think we all are. Uh, it's obvious that we have just started to literally scratch the surface of how all these different elements feed into uh, both uh, perceiving what our rights are and how those interact with responsibilities. And there's so much more to discuss here. And we're going to do that. If you'll just be patient and wait until next week, we're going to continue this discussion, uh, both with Pastor Liz Carney and also with Dan O'Neill. So uh, Dan and Liz, thank you so much for joining us this week. And to all of you out there, please join us again next week, where we're going to get even further into this very important topic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. Thank, thank you, you, Jeff. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.